It's the the danger, this like hypervigilance is part of impossible parenting culture because for the first time ever in human history, we have access to the scariest stories from every corner of the earth. And we're really bombarded with them a lot. And so the part of our brain that assesses risk, um, the amygdala, it learns through um, experiences or it learns through hearing stories. And so ideas of like things that could happen to our children that we never would have imagined, we are surrounded by those stories. I can't even tell you how obsessed I got one year with secondary drowning, um, mm -hmm. even though that's not really a thing. I was convinced it was going to be a thing. Welcome to the One Strong Mama podcast, the no BS show that's not afraid to get real about all things pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. We're talking with visionaries who are challenging the status quo and changing the world one pregnancy and one birth at a time. I'm Lindsay McCoy, mom of four, exercise physiologist, doula, and childbirth educator. My passion is making pregnancy, childbirth, and recovery better. And I'm also passionate about coconut LaCroix. And I'm Lauren O'Hayan, a mom of three girls, lover of all things tropical. I have never had coconut LaCroix, and I am known for my work with the core and pelvic floor. Hey friends, how's it going? I hope you are doing well. Today's episode is an important topic to cover right now, as so many people are struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety more than ever before, and it makes perfect sense. We're going through an intense time in the world with COVID, with politics, everything just seems really, really heavy and it is really normal to feel anxious about it. So Olivia, our guest, talks about a lot of strategies, what to do, what to look for, when to know to get more help. And I think this is a really important episode for all of us who are going through some stuff. If you have kids, and you're, it's COVID times, you're probably feeling the stress. So Olivia talks about closing that stress cycle, which I think is a really important thing about regulating the nervous system. How do we do that when our kids are literally with us all day long and we don't get a break? So this is a really important episode. So please enjoy. And then after you finish this episode, come on to our Instagram page, come on to Facebook group and tell us what you thought. Tell us what questions you had. And also tell us what else you want to be hearing for us on this podcast. This podcast is for you and we want to be covering the topics that you want to be hearing about. Without further ado, here's the episode. Olivia Scobie, she, her, is a social work counselor who specializes in perinatal mood disorders, birth and reproductive trauma for new parents, having a hard time adjusting to life with baby. Olivia is also a retired doula with two loud kids and one old dog. She believes in good scotch. Okay, I'm coming over, telling your story <laughs> and supporting families through difficult times. Olivia, it is great to have you with us. I am intrigued, mostly by the scotch. No, um, I'm very <laughs> intrigued. So we're happy to have you because this is a really important topic and is often glossed over as are many things in health around um, health, health, for I wanted to say for women, but I feel like there's got pregnant people and postpartum people. Um, before we dive into the juice of our interview, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you get into the work that you do? And, um, you know, the retired doula bit is probably 
part of that story somewhere. So that would be interesting to hear about too. Just tell us about how you got to where you are. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I got into this work, I think the way that a lot of people who work with perinatal mood disorders and birth and reproductive trauma do, which is through my own experience. I was uh, young, I started early is usually what I say uh, when I describe having kids. I was um, just about a year out of high school when I got pregnant with my first. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I had a really um, scary birth. I, I usually say that the, I don't remember much about it, but I do remember that the OB on call turned to my mother, who was my birth support and said, like, if you don't calm down, I'm going to have to medicate you or you have to leave the room. Like you have to choose Valium or leave the room. What are you going to do? Mm. Wow. Um, and it was just a shit show. Um, right from the beginning, like I really thought I was going to nurse. Nursing didn't work out. Um, baby became so dehydrated. We were back in the hospital really quickly um, with a pretty severe tongue tie that made even bottle feeding hard. Um, I quickly fell into a really deep depression, but wasn't kind of sure what was happening to me because everybody had this like, well, what did you think it was going to be like kind of attitude because I was so young um, when I, when I had them and I was single. And so it took a while for me to put the pieces together that I wasn't okay. But then because I was young and single and poor, it felt really unsafe for me to talk to anybody about it because I had a lot of fears around like, are they going to take my baby? Like, what does this mean? Maybe I'm not a good mom. And so I just kind of suffered in silence and then I went back to school when um, in I'm from Canada. And so usually you get kind of a year to 18 months of, of mat leave. Um, but I opted for uh, six weeks and then I went back to school, but that might feel really normal um, for folks listening from the States and got into um, gender and family studies and sociology and started to sort of put together just a lot of things that were happening in my life that made a lot more sense when I started to think about sort of the broader social issues of like what happens with our maternal identity and the expectations on parents and mothers and was just really interested in the intersection of uh, maternal identity at that time specifically and how that shaped our moods. And I went on to have a second child, although I was really scared and went even further. Um, at that point, I was working with moms who were in the prison system and what was happening with like reuniting with their kids. And it just sort of grew from there that I had a big interest in looking at the sociological things that happen uh, for parents and then what that means for having depression, anxiety, and what that means in terms of having a trauma response. And so I became a doula for a while as I was putting myself through school. I loved it, but I hate being on call. I find that really hard. It's um, hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. And then I've been um, working as a social worker in private practice and doing a lot of teaching and training in this area ever since. Awesome. Thank you for that. So postpartum mental health what is normal hormonal ups and downs versus um, not normal? 
and you know normal is in quotations of yeah, course yeah well but. i mean like there is definitely a hormonal shift and we see it like when i'm talking to my pregnant clients we talk we often see it at day 3 when those hormones dive right right after you give birth so it's, so there is some stuff i think people are told like it's normal to feel overwhelmed a little bit it's normal to feel emotional but i think sometimes new parents wonder, well, is this normal or like what, what would be a sign that I need something more that this is not right? Yeah. So there's a model that I, I use when working with clients and, and looking at what happens biologically is kind of one part of that model. And you're absolutely right. There is that dip in progesterone and estrogen um, that can feel really hard and takes a while to kind of level out specifically if parents are nursing. But when I think about the biological parts of postpartum depression, anxiety, um, there's a lot about postpartum life that's just not that great for our mood in general. And so while it's true that oxytocin can be protective um, for babies um, and for your mood um, as a parent, the hormonal shift is really hard. For people who I sort of deem as like hormonally sensitive, that can be really hard for them to have those big dips. Mm -hmm. But then there's also what happens with sleep deprivation and how hard that is on our neurotransmitters to be constantly disrupted um, throughout the night and also throughout the day. There's what happens when we are really isolated and we're seeing that a lot with COVID right now that everybody, parents or not, are like, it's really hard to be isolated and stuck at home. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it's like for most new parents. And so it's not shocking that they would be having a hard time right. with their mood in terms of how great it is for our bodies to move and to go outside and to be in sunshine. But that's only one part. Um, and often when we talk about postpartum mood disorders, we think of it as something that is really hormonal and that's a piece, but it's not the whole piece because we know that partners also um, get PPD and PPA. We know that adoptive parents or people who became parents via surrogacy also get it. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like just a really limited um, way to kind of um, think about what's happening with our moods, which is why I like to look at a bunch of different areas. But for some folks, it does feel really biologically driven. And that usually comes on really fast. Often there's a link to pretty severe sleep disruption. And so it's kind of normal in the first two to four weeks to feel overwhelmed, to maybe have feelings of regret, to feel really weepy. But if you are feeling that going beyond that time, and if you are feeling really hopeless or really scared, then usually it's worth talking to somebody else to see if there's something else um, going on. Yeah, I've heard stories of people having postpartum depression, I mean, nine years later, right? Yeah. It's, you know, and then it's interesting that it's called postpartum depression at that point, but I guess you're always postpartum, right? When it's, when maybe it started, it started sooner, maybe, I don't know. And like you said, it's not always hormonal, it's situational. So if you're going from, you know, I had kids young too, so I joke that I didn't know any better, but if I was, 35 and I had been living my life a certain way for a long time. And now you throw a baby in the mix. Lauren, you talk about how hard that was for you to just like mm -hmm. have your whole identity suddenly be shifted into 
the baby. Like I felt very constantly. isolated because I, my experience did not match most other people's experience who, mm. huh? Oh, sorry. That was just my therapist voice. Oh. Mm, go on. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I love that. Um, oh, okay. Let me tell you. So no, I mean, I was 29 when I had my first and I had moved from Israel and I was 38 weeks pregnant or 36 weeks pregnant when I moved to New York city. I felt very isolated. I'd left my whole community behind. I'd owned a yoga center in Tel Aviv. I'd had this like grand dream of how I was going to be birthing and raising my kids. And suddenly I was in Brooklyn alone. Um, but you know, I, for each of my three births, I didn't, when I read about some of the symptoms of postpartum depression, those were not my symptoms. And so that made me feel isolated because I like, um, one of the symptoms that I hear of is very common is like, um, hypervigilance that the baby is going to be okay. Is that, is that, is that true? Yeah, often you'll see that with postpartum anxiety, um, a lot of health vigilance and intrusive thoughts around scary things happening to the baby. Yes, the intrusive thoughts. I had the opposite. I was like, and as a person, I'm very, um, I don't worry that easily. I'm not prone to, I, I'm the opposite. If anything, I'm a little irresponsibly kind of, I don't know how you would describe it, but I'm the exact opposite. And that's how I was. I, I, was not concerned about anything, except I was deeply aware of how much I hated having a baby. <laughs> that was basically, so my only symptom was extreme unhappiness and um, stress about being a mom. So can we talk about that? Is it maybe anxiety versus depression? And maybe not specific. We don't need to say what Lauren had, yeah, but, I mean, <laughs> but like, I think that comes up because people are like, well, I'm not having this symptom that I heard of. So what, mm -hmm. what is the difference between depression and anxiety? It's a really important thing to talk about because everything tends to get lumped under postpartum depression or I had postpartum or a little bit of postpartum, but you're right. What happens when we're feeling depressed? And I think of depression as really feeling down. Like there's a real heaviness to it. Often there's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of, I've ruined my life. There's a lot of, you know, I'm not doing a good enough job versus the anxiety and postpartum anxiety actually shows up more than postpartum depression from sort of the, the most current research that we have. And yet we still kind of hyper-focus on the depression, but the anxiety I think of is going up. And so it can be insomnia. I'm having trouble sleeping. I don't want to be um, alone with the baby. I'm afraid. I don't want anybody else to be with the baby. I'm afraid. I'm scared for them. I'm scared for me. It's all the racing thoughts, all the rumination. And so it can be confusing for people who are kind of like obsessed with their baby. They're like, I love my baby. This is like, they're mm -hmm. the best, mm -hmm. but I'm having a hard time. And that won't always show up when you are chatting with your doctor or chatting with people about trying to get support for yourself because you feel like happy with the baby. And that is great. I'm like, great, happy about that. And we also need to think about what's going on for you in your own private moments. Um, I feel like the babies are often really well taken care of. I'm like, but what about you and your needs and wants and desires? Yeah, I, you know, I sometimes I'll, I'll see little signs of it at a postpartum visit with a client. Like I, like, let's say I go and they're, a week postpartum in full makeup, their house is immaculate and they're like 
they have all these little kids running around and I'm just thinking, what is, you know, that, that looks great. Like you, you'd go in and you'd be like, oh, wow, look, they have their, all their shit together. <laughs> but when in reality, I remember, I can remember some specific clients that this happened to, and they were not okay. Like it was, it was a cover, you know, like you can look all happy and everything can look fine when in internally it's not. So are there, are there signs? Are there things that we should be like, let's say you're a doula or you're a midwife or you're a partner or your friend, like what are, what are some signs that we maybe need to support someone more or do something or talk to them? I think that, I mean, the number one question that a lot of new parents have is, is this normal? And that can be really hard to answer when it comes to the mild um, postpartum mood disorder stuff that can show up. It's a lot clearer when it's sort of medium to um, severe because often your client will say, or if they have a partner, their partner will say like, something's really off, something's really different. And so if people are feeling really disconnected from the baby, feeling really unbonded to them, although again, bonding can take time and there's nothing kind of weird about that. If, if the symptoms are starting to interfere with everyday life, for sure, I would be referring that client to talk to their doctor um, or um, therapist or, or to be seeking some sort of professional support along those lines. If people are feeling really tortured by intrusive thoughts, I would also be um, referring them to, to chat with somebody. And for me, the biggest one is sleep. If your client is really not sleeping because the baby's up a lot, I always have um, just a, a, a warning light that goes off around like, okay, let's really sort of stay on top of that. Or if the baby's sleeping, but they're not sleeping, if they have really intense insomnia, then that's something that I would also be referring out pretty quickly because the link between like severe sleep deprivation and what happens with our mood is pretty clear that when we're not sleeping, most of us aren't okay. And um, there's even some interesting, I know in Toronto, uh, when sometimes people are having severe sleep deprivation and they start to feel like they're really losing it and they go to the hospital, often the first thing the hospital will do is be like, we have to get you to sleep and then we'll assess what's going on with your mood, but it's really hard to know until you've slept. And when I did really long, like doula birth work, I would really feel it. Like I'd be on my way home from the hospital or the birth center or the client's home. I would feel like a maniac and I would be restoring everything that happened at the birth. Like the nurses hate me. The clients are disappointed with me. And then once I had like some solid sleep, I'd wake up and be myself again. That's so true. You know, I, just last week I was at a birth. I got there at 9 p.m. and I got back to my house at 7 a.m. So it wasn't that it was excessively long. It was just that it was complete one whole night of no sleep. And I'm it's it's hard and I don't have any, you know, clinical anxiety, depression. And I just getting home was hard. And, you know, that is one of the most difficult things. And then you think, so this mom was just up all night and now she, you know, I can go home and sleep. She now has to nurse a baby and take care of a baby. So it can be really hard to set yourself up for success when you're, you can't recover after 
you give birth. And that's even when it's been like a pretty decent birth, when there's been a traumatic birth mm-hmm. or birth oh that needs a lot of processing. Yeah. Sometimes people can't sleep because they're just so amped up yeah. from the adrenaline and the cortisol. And so they won't sleep if the baby's really sleepy in the first couple of days, and then they'll crash and be really not okay. Right around the time you're having that big, like estrogen progesterone crash. So get, so number one tip is probably, it sounds like get sleep, ask for, if you're a new mom, dad, uh, parent, and you're not sleeping, find someone, you know, find someone on your support team in your village to give, let you take a nap. Yeah. Right. That would be maybe number one. Yeah. Okay. And if you can't, if that feels impossible, because you're like, there's no way I could let somebody else be with the baby. There's no way I could sleep. I'm like, Ooh, that's also a sign or a signal that things aren't okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Lauren's talking, Lauren, you were talking more about how you were feeling like those feelings of like, this sucks. Like I was on the other side, especially baby one. I was like, nobody, like no one give me the baby. Like I will do it all. I don't need help from anyone. Like wrap them to me and they are mine and everyone else get away. So maybe I was a little on the anxious side for that. Yeah, I was, for me, I was jealous of the people who were so hypervigilant in a way. (laughs) So I was like, Wow. I, I wish we were friends when we both had that. little babies. <laughs> yeah. My my condition for having two more children back to back. So I had my kids three years, like one after the other. And my condition to my partner, because he would have kept going to 10 kids, was that I didn't sleep with them and that I would pump and go to bed in the guest room and I would sleep a full night sleep. And he would do all the night shifts because he can he can function actually on three hours of sleep every day, all day. Um, and so that was how we had the other two. Cause I just couldn't. That's so uh, like, funny, Lauren. We are so uh, yeah, different with babies. Totally. I, I know we're like, so different. I was like the co-sleeping rolled to my side and nurse all night. Like baby if I wake wearing. up in the middle of the night for anything, I do not fall back asleep. So mm-hmm. back to Olivia gave me permission to yes. not have oh to gosh. sleep with my children. Um, Olivia, what, what else, like, what else do you think? Like, what else are, um, cause when I think back on it, I know so many people who are very hypervigilant, like you're describing, does that, is it always a red flag or does it have to go hand in hand with intrusive thoughts for it to be a red flag? And, and this is the thing that's so confusing. And I just want to briefly touch on the other parts of the model. Cause I think it might oh, bring yes. some clarity Sorry, yes. that, I mean, and you're talking about some of them because the other part of the model is like our thinking patterns and our thoughts that we know that people who are more prone to rumination, who are more prone to critical thinking or perfectionism, they tend to have a tougher time with their mood. And so sometimes that will look like hypervigilance or it will look like um, being really kind of obsessed um, with the baby in both positive ways and ways that don't feel so positive. There's also life circumstances that there are so many factors um, that have been connected to having a difficult time with your um, mood postpartum, like having a difficult birth, like having financial struggles, like having a dud for a partner. Um, and that list can get really long. Things like moving, even though I know a lot of folks are like, we're going to buy a house or we're going to renovate. 
Um, but all those sort of stressors can really add up to make it just harder to cope with the, the challenges of postpartum life. Also aspects of identity. And so this is where concepts such as um, maternal ambivalence show up. And that just means that we feel that push pull between the needs of our children and the needs of the other parts of ourself, like our intellectual self or our sexual self or our, you know, relax, I like to just be alone and do my own thing self. And how not all of us love the work of painting a young child, like the diaper changing, feeding and the going for a walk, which doesn't necessarily mean we don't love our baby because mm -hmm. the relationship we have with our kids is really different from just the work that's involved with parenting. And reproductive work is often really boring for a lot of folks. And so that can be confusing. And then all of this is happening within what I call the culture of impossible parenting, which are all the, the markers of, you know, to be a good parent, you need to um, really engage in a lot of self-sacrifice. Like that's how we'll know that you're a good parent. It has mm -hmm. best believe that like we need to make every moment magical and so it's not okay for us to have like boring days at home I need to be thinking about my baby's like cake smash for their birthday and I need to be thinking about crafts to do with my kids it's the the danger this like hyper vigilance is part of impossible parenting culture because for the first time ever in human history we have access to the scariest stories from every corner of the earth. And we're really bombarded with them a lot. And so the part of our brain that assesses risk, um, the amygdala, it learns through um, experiences or it learns through hearing stories. And so ideas of like things that could happen to our children that we never would have imagined, we are surrounded by those stories. I can't even tell you how obsessed I got one year with secondary drowning. Mm -hmm. um, even though that's not really a thing, I was convinced it was going to be a thing. And so there's all of this um, subtle pressure in the background around what it means to be good. And we all really want to be good at parenting. We want to be really good parents. And so it's hard sometimes to separate what is coming from where which is why, I mean, I'm a therapist, like a social work therapist, so I really believe in therapy, which is why I'm packing that with somebody, if you're feeling really lost or swept up in it, can be really helpful for parents, regardless of whether or not they get a clinical diagnosis, because some parents will, and that will be very meaningful for them. And some parents won't, either because they don't meet criteria, but they're still not feeling that good. Um, or because um, they don't want to explore that because they are afraid of what it would mean to have a recommendation for medication, particularly if they are nursing. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more. Yeah, sure. I see a lot of that. Lindsay, do you, do you get a lot of that too? Well, I was just, I was thinking when you talk about impos impossible parenting, how like in the 80s, our parents just drank their tab and threw us outside. And I just <laughs> ran around outside all day. And that was, that's, great parenting in my opinion. And now we have to have like 
daily arts and crafts time. And now let's talk about COVID where our kids are home with us all day and the anxiety is rising and we're not surrounded by our village. And it, there's no question why so many people are anxious and depressed. Like it's, it feels impossible not to with the expectations and the internet showing us how not good we are and how we can never live up to this impossible standard that's not actually, you know, doesn't actually exist. You know, I clean up that small little section of my house where I'm taking the video. So everyone assumes my house is immaculate. I mean, that's what everyone does, right? Mm -hmm. So. Totally. And COVID has, it's made us scared in a lot of ways. Again, the amygdala doesn't even know what to do with like, what to do with it. How scared am I supposed to be? What's safe? What's not safe? And we're just figuring it out together um, as we start to learn more about it. But what I've really seen with parents is just the impact on our nervous system from being around our kids all the time without the ability to complete um, a stress cycle, which is a um, uh, Emily and Amelia Nagaski wrote a book called Burnout, where they talk a lot about women's burnout because children are so activating for our nervous system. When babies cry, Often it feels like, oh my God, my body's on fire. I need to get to my baby right away. When we're surrounded by loud noises, when we're surrounded by mess, it's distressing to our system. And we can tolerate distress. Like um, some of us can tolerate distress a little bit better than others. And that's actually really normal and okay. But we need to be able to A, get away from the stressor and then B, be able to self-soothe and like discharge all of those stress hormones from our body. And that feels really impossible to do during COVID. It feels like it takes so much work because we're never alone. We never get to recharge. A lot of the things that we used to do to take care of ourselves don't feel like options anymore because things are shut down and it's scary to go outside. Mm -hmm. And so what's left is just this amping up and amping up of nervous system stimulation until we feel completely burnt out and completely fried And then we blame ourselves for not taking care of ourselves, for not being stronger when it's a systems issue right now. And the the research, early research out of um, Calgary University said that we're seeing dramatic spikes in parents who are describing the symptoms of postpartum depression or anxiety that postpartum anxiety went from about 20% and now people are talking about it at like 80% of new parents are having the symptoms of PPA. Yeah. So what, what, yeah. What do you do about this? What can we do right now? (laughs) Right. So I'll take one second just to plug my book, which came out in Canada a couple of weeks ago. It's called impossible parenting, creating a new culture of mental health for parents, but it comes out in the States in I think the next two weeks. So that is sort of filled with all sorts of different strategies. It goes into the model and how to work with the model. And it really digs into parenting culture. Um, But just generalized tips for folks right now, A, is to think about completing that stress cycle, which doesn't necessarily mean that you get to go to the gym if that really worked for you, or that you're like hanging out with friends in the way um, that you used to, but just, tiny moments throughout the day, if we start to really notice, like, what does it feel like when that fight flight system kicks on? And what does it feel like 
when it's not on. And I'm a big fan of doing um, breath work for parents. So if you've had a really loud day or if you just had a really big fit of crying, um, which is different from take a deep breath, um, but there's counting breathing. So box breathing where you breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four can be really supportive or the four, seven, eight, where you breathe in for four, you hold for seven, and then you breathe out through your mouth for eight. That helps turn on our relaxation response. Um, splashing really cold water on your face helps turn on that relaxation response. And anything that gets the uvula, that like hangy ball thing in the back of your throat moving also helps stimulate the vagus nerve, which will turn on that rest and adjust part of our nervous system. So that's things like humming, chanting, but also things like screaming. And so like have a scream if you need to, it sounds really silly, but it can feel really great to discharge some of that energy because we, a lot of us know the things that are good for our mental health, move your body, try to make sure you get adequate nutrition, try to get lots of sleep, have a routine, connect with your like social community. And we just don't have access to those things in the same way that we used to. So I'm also a really big fan right now for parents using a lot of self-compassion. Of course you feel overwhelmed. Of course you feel sad and scared. That's really normal because it is a scary, sad, overwhelming time. And so to let go of a lot of those expectations that we're supposed to be okay right now, nobody is that okay right now, or very few of us are that okay right now. And until COVID has sort of come to whatever resolution it's going to come to, we're going to be in survival because there is no place of safety for us right now in the world. And the best we have is trying to think about how to create places that feel safe at home. And that may just be micro moments because at home with like a screaming baby and a loud toddler and a kid that somehow you're supposed to teach math, which learned also, I don't remember any math apparently as I'm trying to do my own teaching. Oh, at I'm home. trying to do middle school math. It's the it's worst. so hard. <laughs> so I don't know how to do fractions anymore. Oh my I don't know how to do long division. I don't need to see my stuff. Google search bar. I was like, what's the greatest common factor of <laughs> two numbers? I don't know. And so it's just moments. Yeah, It may not be a complete place of safety. I think that's really important because I think a lot of people think they have to go big or go home and um, they don't realize how much is in their control. Of, yeah. And, and how everything you mentioned as tools, like the breathing, I actually, um, the exact same breathing is in my restore your core online program. They do it at the end of every video. Um, but to, to restore the nervous system. Um, but I think also that having a ritual, whether there's concrete evidence that it's helpful, doesn't matter. It's just a ritual and it takes you into someplace new. And then you begin to uh, if that like uh, if that new thing that you do creates a relaxation response, it could be petting your phone ten times. You start to condition your nervous system that that activity goes hand in hand with a certain response of your nervous system, and I think that that's really important because it can go both ways, right? The sound of your child making a noise that 
really means nothing. You can train yourself to believe it means a lot and you can have these hyper reactions. And in the same way, you can train yourself to uh, have a different reaction. And I think it's through ritual. And I think ritual for parents is so important because they need to feel like they can hold on to something that's theirs too. Like there's so many good reasons. I feel like there are a thousand good reasons why a step away from the moment ritual is so important. If anything, even like the mindfulness aspect, right? So I, I really like that element that you've just brought into it. And I love the way that you sort of describe like anything can be a ritual. And so sometimes that's just, I'm going to change out of my like nighttime pajamas into my daytime pajamas every day by nine o'clock. And I'm like, mm-hmm. awesome. Great. Oh, wait, wait, I'm totally still in my pajamas. It's like <laughs> 1 p.m. <laughs> uh, it doesn't need right. to be anything. It doesn't need to be anything really big. It's yeah. just those micro adjustments mm-hmm. that make a big difference. Yeah, I think that's huge. And for self-care, one of my best friends teaches like self-care and all of this stuff around actually like intimacy and partners and being a new mom and wanting to be intimate. There's a lot of um, people who will admit that they don't want to be intimate after they've had a baby. And one of the biggest things she talks about is like, you have to have your self-care rituals. Yeah. How can you, when your tank is empty, Mm -hmm. how can you possibly consider like, I just remember feeling so touched out, Mm -hmm. feeling so exhausted that like, I would enjoy that if I had the capacity, but it was just like it. and, And I think, you know, the thing is, I think it's important for people to know what one of my friends who's a therapist always said is like, don't make any major life decisions or like relationship decisions mm-hmm. that first year postpartum, maybe. I mean, obviously there's a time and a place you need to, but she's kind of saying like, this shit's not your normal. It's not your forever. This first year is intense. So I think the question is always like, what's normal intense and what is like, I need help intense, right? Yeah. Totally. And that is a really hard question to answer often for that mild, sometimes to moderate um, mood piece. And that's where talking to somebody who specializes in this can be really helpful that they, you can sort of come to that um, answer together if you're not sure. What about things you can do in advance of having, so like you're so much smarter usually maybe with your second or third or fourth or fifth child, you know what to expect. But do you ever give, I'm always careful with expectant parents because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put the whole nocebo effect into play, right? I don't want to suddenly start telling them how bad it's going to be. Like that's Debbie Downer. But what do you do with new parents to help them prepare for, you know, all of this? Um, Do you suggest getting nannies do you suggest getting in-laws do you suggest are you talking about postpartum lauren like what to do yeah like what to do when you're pregnant to prepare for yes postpartum because i think that like a lot of people don't they just we're so focused on the birth lauren one what i call it the example i give to my doula clients is i say you know it's important to prepare for the birth it's like preparing for the wedding but we also got to prepare for the marriage we can't just prepare for that so how do we prepare for the marriage Yeah. Right. Or the, yeah. Like what, how do you prepare for postpartum prenatally? So I'll often touch on um, 
the sort of six factors of perinatal resilience, which came out of research around folks who had a great time in their postpartum to be like, what are they doing? Like, let's take a look over here. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing that feels that you'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But it's about figuring out how clients can apply it to their specific life and their situation. So it's things like adequate self-care. But the biggest piece around self-care isn't what you're doing, because that's really individual. It's that you feel entitled to it. You're like, of course, I get to take care of myself. Of course, that's going to be a part of what happens postpartum. Same with the second, having enough help. Of course, I deserve help. It's not reasonable for anybody to do this all by themselves. But help means different things to different people. Some people have resources for lots of help, like nannies and doulas. Some people have family or friends close by. Other people, it's complex negotiations with their partner if they have one. Um, it's uh, The third is managing stress, which again, right now during COVID, we don't have that much control over some of the stressors in our life. But how do we respond to those stressors and how do we soothe ourselves when we're feeling stressed? Um, feeling prepared for the baby is a big one. Parents who have preemies or who have um, babies that come at unexpected times. I had a client once who had her baby right at 30, 37 weeks and that was really distressing for her because she's like, I thought I had three weeks. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even done work. I thought I had right till the end. So everything... Um, uh, leading up to the birth, I personally think that the best time to give birth is when you are so sick of being pregnant that every day you're like, oh, come agree. on, baby. So agree. That there's nothing left to do. Um, and then it's also managing the expectations of yourself. And that's a really big one. Closing the gap between what you think life is going to be like with a baby versus what it's actually like. And there's always a gap that's normal, but the sooner we can close that gap and be like, okay, so this is going to be our normal and I can roll with it. Um, those are some of the most critical things that parents can do and things that doulas really help with. I think they help get prepared. They help manage those expectations. Um, and they help with putting the pressure on around, you have to take care of yourself. It is not a marker of how good you are at this. If you are a wreck, that's not the sign. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not, if you can, if you're at playgroup uh, a week after you give birth, you're not better than the mom who's still sleeping, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if your house is cleaner, I think we just put these ridiculous expectations on ourselves. And if we could just give ourselves a freaking break, like I will even tell my clients with baby two, cause my hardest was probably baby two afterwards, because I was it's still, you know, it's like going from one to one to one to two. And I was like, how do I give this much attention to both? And so I got really overwhelmed. And so I tell people things like, it's okay. If your toddler watches three episodes of Sesame street or whatever they watch these days, so that you aren't a freaking mess at the end of the day. Like it's not forever. It's a short period of time, you know? I also yeah. found the adjustment from one to two really hard. I was yeah. like, did I have time before that I just didn't know that I had? Because now it feels like any time I had when the first kid was asleep is now being taken up by like right. other needs. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. It's hard. Yeah. It's so hard. I know people, uh, I have teenagers now, Olivia, how old are your kids now? 16 and 12. Mm -hmm. I have teenagers too, right? That same age group. And, uh, and so does Lindsay actually. And yeah. I 
people are always talking about how, you know, they hate the teen years. And I'm like, I would birth, <laughs> I will have 10 more kids. If you give me teenagers, I, it's, I love this age 10 onwards, but I love babies. I know birth, you do the baby, the, the birth I was just at like this huge, like luscious 10 pound baby. I was like, you know, my, we can't, we're not having any more babies, but I was like, Oh my gosh, I just want to snuggle that baby. <laughs> But I know it's hard. It's a hard period for most people. But it's really interesting when we think of the ages and stages that we like. And I think every parent has a sweet spot and like a nemesis spot. For me, it's three. Like I think three-year-olds are sociopaths. I love three-year-olds too. I think I'm crazy. (laughs) I'll potty train all your kids. I love potty training. (laughs) But the, there's a way that we get to talk about like, ugh, teenagers and like, yeah. ugh, the, you know, the terrible twos. But that when it comes to like sweet, precious babies to be like, ugh, infants feels really different and yeah. scary. Say it right. So I love Lauren, you normalizing that. I love us all, you know, we all have different ages we like and that's okay. Doesn't, like you said, Olivia, it doesn't mean that we don't like our kids. It's just a really difficult time. That's okay. Yeah, totally. Uh, we have to wrap up our talk, but, um, and this has been so great and informative. Is there, I guess I, I'm my last question and Lindsay, I wonder if you have one too, but is there, what about supplements? I hear a lot of things, supplements and, um, uh, even, uh, micro, well, you don't have to give your opinion on <laughs> microdosing mushrooms, but I do have a friend who, <laughs> was like her life was saved because of microdosing literally um it was the only thing that saved her life so uh i'm just curious like do you do you ascribe to anything so because of the way that it works where i'm registered i can't give advice around things like supplements or medication but my personal opinion is that if it works for clients then like that's great I don't have strong opinions about that. The one thing that I would um, generally recommend is um, there's a book called The Upward Spiral that talks about um, how to work with your mood and looks at the importance of like moving your body. And that doesn't mean aggressive exercise. I think the magic number is about 11 minutes of like heart pumping activity a day. And it looks at the role that um, uh, sunshine plays, which for folks who are Northern like me is hard to come by these days because the sun goes away at four o'clock, um, and looks at the role of like nutrition and anti-inflammatory kind of foods. And so there's a lot of stuff that you can do if you want to go that route that can feel really supportive. I usually recommend that people find a healthcare practitioner that specializes in, in postpartum, largely just so that they know about the hormone changes and if people are nursing, who can, who can guide you, but generalize things like, you know, fatty fish and move your body. Um, movement in particular can be really great for serotonin, the part of our brain that is um, supported through an SSRI or an antidepressant. It is a bit of a natural antidepressant to move your body and get in the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. (laughs) For real. I would just like to hear if you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners going through, maybe they have a new baby and it's COVID. Like what are your final words of wisdom? Just go easy. 
go easy on yourself and go easy on the folks around you. I really think that we need to sink into a lot of compassion right now for ourselves and for the people around us because it's really hard. And right now it kind of feels like we're all drowning and fighting over the same life preserver. And just to bring that awareness to what it's like to be swimming in this together. And it will end. You're really right that this will, this will end. Mm -hmm. Soon, apparently. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. So where can people find you? I know you will put it all in the show notes. We'll, we'll add the link to your book. Um, What like socials, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, social media is probably a good one on Facebook. Um, I'm running a free online um, book club next year because I know it could take parents a full year to read the book, but we'll be working with all of the concepts and tools from the book. I also have a free course on anxiety that's um, up that people can access um, if they're looking for, again, really practical stuff to do at home right now. And then I also do trainings. And so um, you can reach me at Canadian Perinatal Mental Health Trainings. And we do a lot with um, Perinatal One-on-One for all sorts of different practitioners, birth professionals, psychiatrists, um, uh, therapists. And we've got some cool stuff coming up around working with perinatal loss and birth and reproductive trauma. So you can find me Oh, a lot of places. I feel like I'm, I'm online in a lot of different ways. I'm not that great at Instagram, but you can find me on Instagram. If you want to see pictures of my dog, (laughs) we'll link all of it. Send it, send us an email. We'll link all the places. What kind of dog do you have? Oh, she's a mutt who came from Greece. She's a a rescue. Um, so we have no idea. We call her like, she's our Greek dog. The Greek dog. I love it. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, And all the best with everything going on in, in your worlds right now. You too. Thank you all for listening to the One Strong Mama podcast for birth professionals. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and a review. We really do appreciate all of the support. If you are a birth worker with an inspiring client or if you have a birth pro in mind that we should definitely chat with, please email us at podcast at onestrongmama.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at onestrongmamaprenatal for tips for all stages of pregnancy. And definitely join in on the discussion in the One Strong Mama Facebook community group. See you here next time. This episode is brought to you by the One Strong Mama program, the game-changing prenatal and postnatal program that prepares the body for pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Based on the Body Ready Method, teaching birth and fitness pros how to assess and train prenatal clients. Go to onestrongmama.com to learn more.